We made a meeting to go back up and meet with Keith, Keith Anderson. I didn't know anybody else was involved at that time. And so when I met Keith, there was a little thing called the uh, Fayetteville Hotel, Hotel or something like that. And so Keith showed up and uh, we started talking. But I, I told him, I said, I said, I need to know from you right now, you know, why are you doing this? I said, you know, you've got a good job. You're well respected. You're, you're involved in a classified operation down south. I said, well, Richard told me. And he says, so why don't he says we use the army strictly to steal? That was his comment to me. And I said, okay, we're off and running. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is former U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF, undercover agent Fred Gleff. Fred was the ATF agent who recruited four foot nine inch former Green Beret Richard Flaherty of Giant Killer fame in the mid 1980s to work with him as a confidential informant on a case against Green Berets who were stealing weapons from the Special Warfare Center Armory at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. If you haven't heard the Richard Flaherty story, which is covered in the September 24th 2023 episode of this podcast, I highly recommend it. The case against the corrupt Green Berets was only one of the many cases Fred worked on during his very active and distinguished career. Later, he served with U.S. Customs in Miami as part of a new program called Operation Exodus, in which they were trying to enforce the Arms Export Control Act for implements of war coming in and going out of the United States. During the wild cocaine years of that city, Fred ran a covert storefront import-export company that attracted drug dealers of all kinds. It's my great honor to welcome undercover agent Frederick Leff as today's Hero Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. Got out of high school. I was I had uh, told my dad I want to go in the army and and go to Vietnam. And my dad was a captain, retired, thirty six years in the military, and uh, he got you know Silver Star, Bronze Star, got a battlefield commission, Battle of the Bulge. And he told me not to go in. He said to go to college first. Uh-huh. And so so that's what I did. And then while I was in college, I joined the uh, New York State Parkway Police on the uh, Palisades Interstate at Bear Mountain. Oh, yeah. And I did that until, until I graduated. And then I applied for a, a warrant commission in the Army. And I went into the Army CID, Criminal Investigation Division, uh-huh. and, as a special agent. And I, I stayed there for at Fort Bragg for about four years. And uh, from there, when I got out of the service, I went back to graduate school at the University of South Carolina. And then I... Um, uh, Got an offer from ATF and from Secret Service back in 1978 to to go back in. Uh-huh. And so so I went uh, decided to go to ATF because I worked with those guys a lot when I was at Fort Bragg. Mm-hmm. And so I always liked what they did. And so uh, I went with ATF and was stationed in Miami uh, and stayed down there for about 12 years. Okay. Yeah, I was there during the uh, the drug wars in you know 79, 80, 81. Mm-hmm. Uh, stayed down there. I did uh, the uh, the Giant Killer, which you, you know Dave Yosick yeah. uh, did, did the book and the, yeah. the documentary. Yeah. And uh, in 87, I left ATF uh, for various reasons, but mainly because of the uh, 
that Green Beret case that I just mentioned, the, the giant killer, we could have gone a long way in that case. And I just didn't feel like that uh, ATF wanted to just get it over with and, and not step on anybody's toes. So I left and I went to U.S. Customs uh-huh. uh, in Miami. And they had just started a new program called Operation Exodus, in which they were uh, trying to uh, enforce the Arms Export Control Act for implements of war coming in and out of the United States. Okay. And at that time, they had started a covert storefront, uh, which was an import-export company, which I ran for about four years, three years. Uh-huh. And uh, I was an export broker. Uh, and so we we went all over the place. We went all over the world catching bad guys. Okay. Let's go back to ATF. Okay. Uh, can you just tell our viewers a little bit about ATF? Because I know they have a long history, you know, what they do. And then let's get into the, the ATF case first. When it first started, it was... Uh, uh, ATF was under uh, the Treasury Department, right? And uh, we back in you know, the old days, it was uh, IRS, you know, ATU, uh, or I call it tax unit, mm-hmm. and then it turned into ATF back in I believe in the early seventies, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, ATF enforces all the gun laws, all the explosive laws, and all the tobacco laws in the United States. That always kind of intrigued me, especially the the, uh, the explosives and stuff like that. So that's why it kind of kind of geared toward that. Yeah. And uh, when I went to Miami. Uh, I always, I always had a uh, hankering to do undercover work. Uh-huh. Now, most times you you will see that an undercover agent doesn't necessarily be the case agent. Yeah. Because the case agent is the guy that runs the case. Right. Now, in my particular thing, I always was a case agent too because I, I always enjoyed um, not the paperwork but the the overall feeling of of control of my case. Yeah, like the strategy of it and so on. Yeah, and and where you're going with it and yeah. and the legalities, how you're going to get it to court and stuff like that. Right. And so that, that's what I did. Okay. And so uh, I did that for quite a while. Did quite a few cases in Miami. Had a lot of informants. Uh huh. You were concentrated mostly on firearms. Firearms and explosives. Yes. Okay. And what what would you say is the percentage of cases between the three? Oh, I would say probably ninety thirty, maybe. Okay. Uh, I did a lot of firearms cases, and I did uh, about thirty percent were were explosive cases, buying you know controlled substances like like uh, you know. Um, hand grenades, Claymore landmines, yeah. laws, rockets, all that type of stuff. And this is stuff that's coming into the country or, or leaving the country? A lot of this stuff was, was, was when I went to customs now that I was leaving the country. Yeah. But when I was with ATF, it was stuff that was inside the United States for the most part. Okay. Stolen off the military bases. Uh, uh, you know, some people just, they, they build explosives, they build handguns, they build machine guns. Wow. And so most of that stuff is local. And they, they build it and sell it. Yeah, they build it and sell it. Okay. Especially in Miami. You had people in Miami that were making assassination kits uh, for uh, Mac 11s. Wow. Uh, with a silencer, uh, uh, Ruger 22 silence pistols, which was the mob gun. The mobs loved to use the 22 Ruger. Yeah. Uh, it, the, the decibel level was about 30 or 31%, you know, decibels, and that you could very rarely hear it. Really? Wow. So that's where I got interested. And I bet in those days the customers were mainly drug dealers. All drug dealers. I mean, you, you get you get a couple of guys like ex-military guys that wanted to uh, sell stuff and things like that. But mainly, it was the, uh, the the drug dealers in Miami during the drug wars. Okay, so let's get into the giant killer case, Richard Flaherty. I had known about Flaherty for you know about for a couple of years that that he had been involved in the sale of some uh, silencers and and was caught with I forget some cocaine up I forget how much maybe a couple of kilos of cocaine. Standing four foot nine. Richard J. Flaherty was the most unconventional man to ever serve in the U.S. military, much less an elite unit like the Green Berets. In fact, he had to get a congressional waiver to enlist in the Army in the first place. 
Mocked and bullied at boot camp, Richard overcame one physical and psychological obstacle after another. He eventually became a captain, led men in combat, and earned the Silver Star, two Bronze Stars, and two Purple Hearts. Though highly decorated and wanting to pursue a career in the military, Richard Flaherty fell victim to the reduction in force cuts that took place following the Vietnam War, when the U.S. Army was roughly halved from almost 1.6 million soldiers in 1968 at the peak of the war to about 800,000 in 1973. Feeling betrayed by his own government and suffering from the effects of severe trauma, Richard had a hard time adjusting to civilian life. After several failed businesses and drinking heavily, he ended up living on the streets. And when they arrested him, um, it, I was not the arresting agent or anything else like that, but I knew about the case. Yeah. And so um, a couple of years went by, and I had inquired about whatever happened to uh, Flaherty with the agent that arrested him. And I, I don't want to mention any names, okay? Yeah. But uh, he said that uh, he's not working, and we're getting ready. U.S. Attorney called me, and we're going to go ahead and indict him. And I says, well, let me, let me call the guy and see if, if he's available. So I called Richard on the phone one afternoon, and uh, uh, I said, Richard, what's going on? They're getting ready to indict you. And he said, what? What, what for? I said, well, because you haven't done anything. You said you want to cooperate, but you, didn't, you haven't done anything. Uh -huh. He says, I'm an ex-military guy. When somebody tells me to stay, stand, stand still, that's what I do. Yeah. I don't go out looking for anything. I don't do anything. And so I'm not saying it was the other the control agent's you know, problem, right. but he, he never checked back with him. And I guess that's what it was. Right. So basically what happened was Richard was arrested selling silencers, you said, and, right. and a small amount of cocaine. And he offered to cooperate with law enforcement. He offered to cooperate with the government. But they never called him. They, they never contacted. They just said, just, you know, hold, hold still and, and we'll we'll get back to you. And and they never did. Yeah. And so they got ready to indict him. And, and on a, I forget what it was, maybe a Thursday or Friday, I called him and, and, he, and I said, would you want to work with me? And he said, absolutely. I said, God, I'm from Fort Bragg. I know Fort Bragg. Yeah. I said, I understand you were up there uh, in, as a, in capacity with with the Armed Special Forces, and and he said, yeah, he says, and I have some good contacts up there that I think we can do some good. Uh -huh. I told him also that, uh, you know, if we do this thing, I want you to make a phone call to one of the bad guys, a guy by the name of, uh, of Keith Anderson. Yeah. And so, uh, and I says, but I'm going to ask him some questions when I get there. And because all my friends are former SF guys. Yeah. Uh, I've got a lot of friends. And when, after Vietnam, a lot of SF guys came into Army CID because there's nothing to do. There's no mission for them. Yeah. So I said, so I'm not really cool about doing this thing if it if it doesn't sound right. Yeah. So I had Richard call uh, Keith uh, on Sunday afternoon, and on the phone, Keith always called him Captain Flaherty. Captain Flaherty, how you doing? Yeah. And so, uh, a lot of respect for him. Okay, from from these guys. Yeah. And so uh, we made a meeting to go back up and meet with Keith Keith Anderson. I didn't know anybody else was involved at that time. Yeah. And so when I met Keith, there was a little thing called the um, Fayetteville Motel Hotel or something like that. And so Keith showed up and uh, we started talking. But I, I told him, I said, I said, I need to know from you right now, you know, why are you doing this? I said, you know, you've got a good job. Yeah. You're well respected. You're, you're, you're involved in a classified operation down south. Yeah. I said, well, Richard told me. And he says, so why are you doing He says, we use the Army strictly to steal. That was his comment to me. Wow. And I said, okay, we're off and running. This is a guy who who's still in special forces, right? He, he was D eight, and he was stealing stuff from the armory at Fort Bragg and selling it. He was stealing whatever they could get their hands on. Yeah, 
Um, they were, they were stealing, you know, uniforms, they were stealing, you know, what they call TA 50 gear, which is all the gear that's assigned to a new recruit coming in for, for going out to do jumping and, and all this other stuff, anything that they can get their hands on. And they even formed, he told me that same night that they had formed a corporation, him and his partners. Wow. And they had a warehouse out in a small warehouse, which is a large warehouse out in uh, Spring Lake, North Carolina, which is right on the other side of Fort Bragg. Uh-huh. And he said, one of these days, if, if, if things work, we'll, uh, we'll take you out there and show it to you. Wow. And so that night uh, I said, I says, all right, well, let's go. So we came up with a lot of code signs, like, like bullets were going to be pencils. Uh, apples were going to be uh, hand grenades. Claymore landmines were going to be big books, you know, uh, stuff like that. So we came up with a whole vernacular. And I said, how long can it be till you get us something? And he said, well, I've got stuff out in my truck right now. Huh. And so he went out to his, he had a VW bus. Yeah. And he, he carried back in a, a big, um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's a parachute kit bag. It's a real big, heavy canvas bag that they carry. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And pack your stuff in. And so we opened it up. And I think that night we got like uh, uh, a couple thousand around, a couple thousand yards of dead cord. Wow. Which is highly explosive. Yeah. Uh, timing, timing uh, timers. Uh, we got uh, 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 C4, about 196 pounds of C4. Now, Fred, how are you representing yourself as a buyer? Yeah, Richard had told them that uh, I looked a lot different, obviously. But uh, back then, uh, I was a drug dealer, that uh, well, actually an arms dealer, yeah. that, that connections with the cartel. Okay. And that, uh, if they wanted to uh, to do guns for drugs or uh, or explosives for drugs, I was willing to uh, to try to make those connections for them. Wow. He didn't try to hide his identity at all. No, no, not, not at all. He walked in. He was very, very suspicious now. And he was carrying a gun. Yeah. And I saw a gun in his waistband. And so, uh, but... Uh, uh, Flaherty was there and he just trusted Flaherty 100%. Uh-huh. And so Flaherty was the one who kept saying, you know, you know, well, we need this stuff tonight. Can you get stuff tonight? So I had, I think maybe $2,500 on me. Yeah. And I said, this is all I've got. And no, his, his eyes just lit up because he said, oh, that's more than enough. That's more than enough. Wow. And so I ended up giving $2,500 for that stuff that night. Yeah. And then we, then we're off and running. Yeah. Now at the time, was Flaherty living on the streets? Did you know where he was living? No, I I had I'd set Richard up to work for the post office. Oh, okay. He had, he had, a, he had a job with the post office, which now from week to week we can still be there because he's he was continually irritating everybody that he talked to because he got to understand. And also when he got drunk, yeah. I mean he was he turned into a a little fire plug. Yeah, and wanted to fight everybody. So we got up there and uh, uh it was one of these type of things where uh, he and I just hit it off. I mean, Flair and I just hit it off. I. I didn't trust him. I never trust an informant yeah. uh, to that stage, but I, I did trust him as far as uh, walking in a room, not knowing anybody in there and and him taking over and saying, Hey, this guy's a cool guy. Yeah. My, my stance was I was over in Charlotte trying to collect money from a guy. Uh, he owed me about a hundred thousand dollars. And so uh, I was trying to collect money. So Richard was with me and he said, Hey, I got these guys at Fort Bragg. You want to go meet them? Yeah. That's how, that's how I got in. Okay. He had a silver star, bronze star, and he had four purple hearts. Wow. So I had a lot of respect for the guy also, but I also knew he was also troubled. Yeah. Because this was a guy that the, the military never should have riffed, and rift means reduction in force. Yeah. And so this is one guy that if he'd stayed in the military, who knows where he would have gone. Yeah. Uh, but he, uh, they riffed him, and he, he got out, and he just was wandering. Yeah. Uh, he stayed. He lived under a, a palm tree down in Aventura, Florida, for about 18 years. Wow. And this, this is after I, I, I met him, and— and this was later. And when I met him, he was he was still working in, in at the post office and and uh, had an apartment. But drinking heavily and and a troubled guy. Yeah, and always paranoid. Always thinking somebody was was over the shoulder looking at him. Uh, uh, you know, agency guys or whatever. Yeah. You know, he always, Richard was always paranoid. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how did the case develop from that initial meeting? 
Well, we I, I met Keith several more times, and he kept talking about his partners. Uh, and so they they had a, comp, a corporation by the name of CMAG, mm-hmm. and it stood for Carlisle, Anderson, Martinez, and I can't forget what the last guy's name was. But yeah, Martinez was their company commander in Seventh Special Forces. Wow. And so um, and so Carlisle was a high ranking uh, NCO, I believe, is an E eight or E nine, which is a you know sergeant major or first sergeant. Yeah. Uh, but my problem was is that Anderson would told me that uh, Carlisle was to be trusted, uh, but he was a former military investigator at Fort Bragg. Huh. And so what, what they call MPI, which is a military police investigator, which is different from CID. We did felony stuff and they did all the misdemeanor stuff. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was very concerned because, you know, I dealt with these guys almost daily, yeah. you know, going back and forth and taking cases. So the, the night that uh, I met Carlisle at the same hotel, he was coming over, there's knock at the door. Well, I went to the door and I had my gun in my waistband and I took it and put it behind me. And because, I mean, if he had recognized me, I knew they were both carrying guns. Yeah. And so it would have been all over. Uh, but he opened, he walked in, he shook my hand, act like he never knew me. And so we were off and running. Yeah. And Carlisle was very, very astute. He was, uh, you could tell he was the brains. Right. And, uh, and, and and Keith was the was the brawn. Right. This was really dangerous for you because basically this is internal, right? Right. Right. This is something I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure about. Yeah. And uh, the handlers were outside. And uh, these guys were, you know, these, these were, these guys were nobody to mess with. Yeah. I mean, they. They had they'd both been in Vietnam. They they ran the green light program over there, which was for you know a classified operation type of thing. Yeah. And then they uh they the, when they came back here, they just continued to steal. Yeah. And they actually started a corporation before I even came on the scene. Incredible. Who were their clients? Did you know? I, I never I never asked. And they never told me, but they just said that they they can move stuff fairly quickly. Yeah. And then one night, I actually was invited to go out to the uh, myself and another uh, Flaherty went out to the. Uh, uh, to the warehouse in Spring Lake, and it was a huge warehouse, and it was full of military property. Wow! Uh, pallets on pallets, and they had a whole pallet of of blank ammunition, five five six, which is the rounds that go into M sixteen. Yeah, and they wanted to know if I wanted that cheap for like ten thousand bucks, and so, but I, I didn't have any reason for to buy anything like that. So I, I said no, not really. But I started buying Claymore landmines off these guys, hand grenades, um, more C four, uh, dead cord, anything that that I could get my hands on, huh. uh, large rockets, all that type of stuff. And did they ever disclose how they stole this stuff? The way that we d- designed the plan was that these guys were running a, a, a classified operation down in outside of Tegucigalpa, Honduras, uh-huh. and they said it's going to be real easy for us because we can get anything we want from the ammo supply point with the proper signatures on a hand receipt, uh-huh. and they put on it. Uh, they put on, you know, operation special operation outside CONUS, which is continental in the United States. Right. A residue was non-returnable, and that means that once it went out the door, it didn't have to come back. Yeah. And so uh, we started doing that, and so I'd start get these hand receipts that were signed by various people inside the Seven Special Forces group, uh, and so we would uh, everywhere that they went, I would meet them somewhere. One time, uh, I, they were flying a, a, a under a Special Forces uh, dive team into, into uh, Key West. Uh huh. And so Keith called me on the phone and he says, look, we'll meet you at the, uh, at the Naval weapon station or the Naval, uh, Naval air station down there in Key West. Yeah. So I went up to the gate and they opened it up. I don't know who opened it up, whatever, but I drove my truck in there and, and I went up to the back of the C-130 and I, uh, I loaded my, my truck up with, with ordnance and I was getting about five and a half tons of ordnance. Uh, so, so there was quite a bit. Yeah. Then I drive back out and then that C-130 would pick up the remaining uh, SF scuba team that was just got certified and flying back to Fort Bragg. Yeah. And we did that several times. I met these guys in Jacksonville, but I guess what my point is, Ralph, is that they gave me access to all their classified passwords for their ammo supply point. 
Wow. And they gave me, they gave me the, the name of a, of a SF guy with 10th group that uh, would take a lot of the heat off of anything going through Fort Bragg. So I was going through 10th group out there to order stuff through him. Wow. And, uh, uh, and so later on, after Carlisle became, you know, you know, fairly confident with me that, that I could get things done. You know, they always wanted the dope. They always wanted, you know, gets cocaine, gets guy. I always got, you know, put them off and kept paying them because money, money always talks yeah. to begin with. But sooner or later, you got to, you know, as they say, you got to do it or get off the, or get off the throne, you know? Right. And so um, it's one of these type of things where uh, I kept putting them off, putting them off. And I met him, you know, I met Anderson more than did Carlisle because Carlisle was, was the brains. You could tell. Yeah. And he kind of Keith out there up front. And they wanted drugs. They wanted drug. They wanted to exchange drugs for this. Carlisle and Anderson both told me that uh, in a meeting in, in Fort in Fort Bragg, that they wanted to uh, establish an independent cocaine network in Fort Bragg. Wow! And they wanted to eliminate all the competition. And so that's when they told me because I asked him a question. Well, how do you eliminate the competition? He says, "Well, we don't shoot anybody." Yeah. He said, "What we do is we use ketamine hydrochloride." And he said, "What we do is we hold a person down." And we inject it, we inject it with with ketamine in the in the common carotid artery. They start to they totally pass out. And he said, then we push them under under a tub of water, and as they're waking up, they drown. Ironically, this is the same way actor and comedian Matthew Perry died recently when he was found dead in his hot tub on October 28, 2023, in Los Angeles. An autopsy report released by the Los Angeles coroner's office blamed the acute effects of ketamine. First synthesized in the early 1960s and securing FDA approval for medical use in the U.S. in 1970, ketamine was first deployed as a general anesthetic in battlefield medicine and surgeries during the Vietnam War and later as an effective animal tranquilizer. With its fast action and relatively low toxicity, the drug soon supplanted pencyclidin, or PCP, as the popular emergency anesthetic. But like PCP, ketamine also spread through the illicit underground, where it remains a popular drug, especially in the UK and increasingly in the US, where seizures of the drug have increased 349% in the past five years. Guys were in uniform, and you know they had all the all the all the cabbage on their stuff, and they they looked good. Yeah. And so, and the jury was mainly con, you know con, you know consisted of retired military people that are you know retired in West Palm Beach. Sure. And so, but everything was real quiet, and I had a Niagara tape recorder, which is a small tape recorder that was it's it's, it's a very good tape recorder for taping. And so, uh, when I'm up there testifying, and I start talking about how these guys told me how to kill a person. Yeah, the whole jury just stopped and says, "Wait a minute, you know these guys—they're wearing a uniform, but yet they're talking about killing people." Yeah, and it went on and on and on. And it was a really—it's a kind of poignant point of the trial because you know it was a classified trial to begin with because this, these guys, uh, their their whole contention was they thought this was a CIA operation outside Conus and they were being recruited to do it, and that was always just a bunch bunch of bull. Yeah, and a CIPA hearing is a classified information procedures act hearing uh-huh. in which they uh, everybody in the courtroom they close it off. Everybody in the courtroom is going to have a top secret clearance. And then we bring the witnesses in and they they certify, you know, uh, exactly how the whole operation uh, orchestrates from the very start and had nothing to do with what they did. Uh, nothing. I mean, I never would have met these guys first. Yeah, of course. If I was an operator, I would. But they always contended that that we were CIA people. Yeah. And that uh, this was a CIA operation from from the very start. That was their defense. That was their defense. Wow. These are military 
special forces guys, and they're basically stealing weapons from Fort Bragg. From Fort Bragg and Fort Devens. And-, and killing people, killing people who were their rivals, or some of the people they killed, I would imagine, were active military personnel as well. Whoever got their way, that is what they told me. And uh, I said, well, you know, we're not going to get to that stage. And I said, I want to make sure that, that, that you guys are for real and you can give me what what uh, what I need. And then once I get what I need, then I'm going to get you what you need. Yeah. And they kept asking about the guy that was out in Charlotte that uh, owed me money. And it came to the point where I had to I had to do something. And so uh, they we, we set up some cameras out there and put an old uh, seized vehicle out there. I said, look, I don't want to I don't want to kill the guy, but I want to scare him. Yeah. And so he gets up there and he says, uh, he says, all right, well, so Carlisle is on the, you know, calls me one morning and he says, look, I, I, uh, I want you to hear something. So he holds up the phone. There's a big boom. Well, later on, we found out that they had, had a creepy crawler guy that was a former state. I might've been even an active state trooper out of Alabama, which uh, Carlisle had been a state trooper in Alabama before he went in the military. Yeah. And so it's a guy that he uses for a lot of his black bag justice stuff. And so anyhow, and I said, I, I, so I paid him $2,500. They hire the guy, and then twenty five hundred dollars when the, when the deal was done. Mm-hmm. And so, now whether or not they ever did it, I mean, I don't know. And what the boom was, I don't know. But uh, it sounded like it sounded like they're trying to scare him. So yeah. And who was this guy? The guy you you set up to be your contact? No, that that, that was all fictitious. That was the yeah, guy. That, that was my storyline to get up there. Right. And I right. said because they kept asking me about him. I said, you know, let's go get this hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, I just want to scare the guy. I yeah. don't want to kill the guy. Okay. Okay. And so okay. that that's how the whole thing went. Okay. And so once they, once they got to five grand, they were happy and then never came back up again. Wow. But they had no qualms about blowing somebody up. No problem at all. No. Yeah. For five thousand dollars. They said whoever got in their way. Uh, whether it be, you know, the brothers at Fort Bragg or anybody else, uh, they were going to take over. Wow. And so you know, it got to the point where I had to, I had to produce something also. Yeah. And so we, uh, we, we decided that let's, let's go with the, with the munitions and everything else to begin with that. I never bought any guns for these guys. It was always explosives. Yeah. And because that was the easiest thing for them to get out of the country. Mm-hmm. Because like I said, once, once the paperwork was signed for, you know, special op outside CONUS resident non-returnable, then, then it was clear sailing. And Fred, how far up the chain of command do you think this went? I don't know. We we had uh, there was an 06, which was a colonel. Yeah. Uh, we know that the captain was in it. The guy's name was Martinez. We never got him indicted because he never came forward. Mm-hmm. And when these two guys were arrested, they never cooperated. And we were kind of hoping that they would, but then they came up with the CIA defense. Yeah. And it just just never it just never never floated. Yeah. Uh, this this was never an operation. And even the way they go about it, we had special ops guys from the military come in that run the program. Uh, for between the military and the agency. Yeah. And they came in, it never would have been done this way. Right. And so it was just, these guys were looking to. To make money. Yeah. So as we went on, uh, Ralph, we also, I also met another guy. His name was Oscar Alvarez and Oscar Alvarez. His father was a former exiled minister of defense for Honduras. Wow. And I, I met uh, Carlos several times, um, Oscar, I mean, and he was uh, up there for special forces training at their, at their foreign uh, school for, for the Q school to be certified. Right. And he was a very nice guy. And we, and, but he sat there for a couple hours and told us about how he could help with the drug trade. He said, uh, you know, I can get in, I can, uh, I can set up all the, uh, the transportation routes. Uh, he said, we already got a, we already got a classified camp yeah. that we're using right now. And they're flying in now. There were C-130s. He said, so we can do the whole thing. Yeah. And so we, uh, once everything went down, there was not a, a we, he was right in the middle of it, but he knew better than to, to get involved. So he stayed on, on the side and we, we never, we never got him. And I heard he's, he's in the United States now. So huh. good, good, good for him. Yeah. Yeah. So they really wanted to get into the drug trade. 
that was sort of their object with you. Yeah, they really want to do it. And so they're saying, we have the whole apparatus, we have the, the network to get it into the United States, we just need your help to distribute it. And it came to the point where I had to introduce another agent that was a Spanish speaker that, uh, um, uh, Agent Eddie, and he he uh, he looked apart, boy. Yeah. Oh, we all looked apart. Yeah. But he really looked apart, and he came in and he was boasting and typical, uh, you know, druggy type of thing that you know I can do anything, you know, just make sure that everything's there. And we actually gave uh, Carlisle, I mean uh, Anderson, two kilos of of fake cocaine, which looks exactly like it. Tests everything else like that, but you just can't snort it. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up uh, giving it to him at the end, and that's when we busted everybody. Uh-huh. In the end, how many people were arrested? We we uh, we arrested Carlisle and Anderson, and then the other guys were, were the military took care of. They were either uh, they had Article 15 hearings or whatever. And and uh, but uh, we never really got outside these guys. Article 15s are considered non-judicial punishment under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Article 15s are a mechanism that allow the chain of command to punish a soldier for offenses under the Uniform Code of Military Justice without formally charging him or her at a court-martial. What's relevant in this case is that most soldiers accept the Article 15 process because it protects them from having a criminal record. In other words, it's the military's way of dealing with disciplinary problems internally. They didn't want to share the wealth type of thing. They wanted to get all the money. And the more people you introduced, the more money you got to pay. And how did the military treat it? Did they want it kept quiet? The military did, 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 did not like it. Yeah, no, when, not. when we went up there with the U.S. attorney and everything else like that. And I also had to go testify to a couple of U.S. senators about the uh, the holes in the uh, ammo supply agency at uh, the military in general. Yeah. And they were, you know, you're full. And then I started uh, telling these classified passwords that I had to get into the system. Yeah. I told them about the people that, that I had met, supply sergeants that, that they were available to help me yeah. help with them. And, and they were just amazed, but they, they didn't want to hear it. Yeah. And I think that we, we, we could have gone so much farther in that case. Sure. Had they not just want to do the buy bust. You know? Sure. Because as you point out, like all those people who had given you passwords, who had let you onto bases, you know, somehow they were getting paid off too. They weren't just doing this. Now I'm, a, I'm a civilian and, and I'm driving on to a military installation down at, at Key West. Yeah. And I'm a civilian in, in a civilian truck. Yeah. So that shows you right there. Yeah. So this is obviously like a widespread problem. Yeah. And nobody wanted to go into it deeper. That's that's correct. I tell you what quickly what happened in that is after David called me, and he had befriended uh, Flaherty for what fifteen years. Yeah. And Flaherty opened up one day and says, you know, I used to be a Greenberry captain, and nobody believed him. He took him to a storage locker and boom, everything was there. Yeah. And he said, call this guy Fred Gillespie up and so and so, and he says he'll 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 vouch for me. Yeah. So when I talked to David, he said, look, I like come up and. Uh, interview you or come down here. I said, I'm not going to go anywhere. I said, you know, just, just if you want to come up here, fine. Yeah. But then two or three days later, he called me on the phone and he says, uh, you know, Richard's dead. Yeah. And I said, what? Richard's dead? Yeah. He said, yeah, he got hit in a hit and run last night. And he said, he laid in the ditch for four hours before he died. And so, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was one of these type of things. So I was looking forward to seeing Richard again because, uh, but he was, I got him out of more trouble than you ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. I'd get these phone calls years later. Yeah. I get a phone call from New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, police department said, you know, this guy Flaherty. Yeah. And I said, don't tell me he got in a bar. He got drunk and he, he punched out several people and said, yeah, yeah. But he said, he can, I said, he, he'd be the best informant you ever had. He'll, he, he can get anybody. Yeah. And so I get several of those phone calls. Yeah. And then I had to go down to the post office because he had a, 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 a complaint file about an inch thick. <laughs> He'd never show up. Yeah. A homophobe. Yeah. You know, all the, <laughs> you name it. He was, I mean, he, he's, he was just, a, but uh, some of the stuff in the, 
that commander just didn't make sense to me when he said he had an Uzi, you know, pointed toward the front door. And yeah. that's what his, uh, yeah. his, uh, yeah. I think it's cousin said, but I, I, I never saw any of that. And what did you make of all the stuff about, you know, these plane tickets to Kuwait and Venezuela and stuff like that? Well, you know, it's like on a documentary and myself and the guy that uh, was Tonto Peranto, I have kids name now. Yeah. Right. We both said the same thing. I said, you know, where, where's the money? I mean, there, there's, there's no money trail anywhere. Yeah. Unless, unless Richard. And then, uh, you know, David had that other photo and all those special ops guys stand in front of that helicopter. And that's, that's, that's Flaherty. Yeah. But I mean, but his face is blacked out. Yeah. But he's the only little short four foot nine guy. Standing he there. sticks out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So maybe he had a number to count somewhere in Cayman Islands or something like that. You know, and I think they, well, David didn't have access to all. I'm quite sure that if, 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 if uh, Larry had gone to work for the Thieves, they would have found out everything. Yeah. But, but, but he didn't. I mean, he was working local and he working with us and yeah. stuff like that. But I don't think we really had the access to, to all of those, but his, I mean, he'd been all the right countries, you know, Venezuela, yeah. Iran, Iraq, yeah, yeah, all the right places. Yeah, but there's all kinds of private contracting firms and so on and so forth. He could yeah. have been doing anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a troubled guy, definitely. Oh, tremendously. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I'd have to go to the postmaster and plead with him once every couple of weeks to keep him on the job. And finally, finally, said we can't keep him anymore. He, yeah. He's he's he's. Yeah. He said he can't walk around here and not show up and yeah. all sorts of stuff. I was always having to pay him money, but I said, you know, give me something, give me something at all. Yeah, and and I, I paid him pretty well. Yeah, so he he, he had enough to, to live on, but nothing like if he went to those countries as a as a private merc, he he probably made some bucks. Yeah, he must have. I had done a lot of cases with ATF, uh, a lot of good cases, had a lot of good friends, but I just made the uh, the career decision to go over to customs and because they wanted me over there, they got a brand new program, and uh, and we were very successful. We. I, I ran an operation called Operation Stinger, mm-hmm. in which we uh, uh, we had a storefront operation, and we 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 bought everything from C one thirty aircrafts to Hawk <laughs> missile uh, batteries. Uh, we we uh, we laundered money. We whatever whatever we could do, yeah. uh, we did, and it was it was very successful operation. Uh, over I'd say maybe over hundred million dollars in seizures. Wow! In eighteen in eighteen months. Yeah, in eighteen. How did you set that up, Fred? When I came into customs, there was an agent that was already doing the background stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, they asked me if I if I would come over and run it because they they knew my background with with ATF, and so I said, yeah, I'll run it. I just so know. this was going to be like a, a storefront, like what you said, import export business. Yeah, import export business, and I was an import export broker. Okay, and uh, and it got so so good that we actually hired another guy to do the legitimate business side of our business mm-hmm. because we were getting so much business. And then we would do the illegitimate side. Mm-hmm. You got to understand Ralph um, in Miami back in those days, uh, even in the seventies, eighties and nineties, I mean, there's bad guys on every corner. Yeah. And the thing that it was a lot of times, you know, we may mesh with another agency, but we all worked together and we all did it because for the common good. And it was, it, we worked great. Yeah. And so it worked out. Yeah. And, so, and uh, but, but the thing that we ran was just a, a, a really Top-notch op- operation. I mean, we we bring the bad guys in. I went to the the Dermo, which is the uh, defense reutilization area where they they get rid of all the the military stuff that the military doesn't use anymore. Yeah, and actually filled my whole warehouse full of military property. And so when the bad guys would come in, I mean, I had I had Stinger missiles in there, I had log rockets, I had you know, but they're all inert. You yeah, know, everything I had was because it was going to be sold somewhere else. Yeah, and these uh, we got some uh, some Saudi Arabians in there one time, and they. They just loved the place. So they said, you know, what can we have? You know, what can, but, you know, obviously we couldn't give them anything. Yeah. But, uh, but it was just for show. Yeah. But it was, it was a first class operation. Wow. So how did it work? Uh, most, most times on, on the illegitimate side, you'd always have an informant. Yeah. Informant would hook up with somebody and they said, hey, look, we're looking for this. We're looking for that. 
And uh, with with customs, it wasn't so much uh, guns and ammunition as it was high technology. Yeah. You know, a lot of people didn't, uh, you know, like one time we met Bulgarians over in uh, Milan, Italy, and uh, they wanted a, what to call a klystron tube. And this is a high capacity condenser that goes into uh, Hawk missile, uh, you know, batteries, mm-hmm. uh, any other type of, of, of anti-aircraft type of thing. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're about $60,000 a piece. And so, you know, we'd meet those guys for that. Uh, we meet other guys for computers, for high level computers. And I'm going to, you know, talk to you about that if you, if you, uh, that one case I was telling you about. Sure. But, uh, but we, we did a lot, we did a lot with, uh, with customs, you know, before I left. Uh-huh. The one case I want to talk about real quick is, I don't know if anybody remembers, but way back there was a, a pilot of a Cessna 182 that flew all the way in and landed in Moscow Square. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, he was arrested and everything else was a spy and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, uh, we had an informant that was a, uh, a captain of a NATO uh, ammunition ship that was delivering uh, ammunition every month to, to NATO uh-huh. in the Netherlands, in The Hague. And so uh, he was standing there on the dock, and these two guys approached him, and they said, you know, oh, can you give us a, an information about someone who wants to get computers out of the United States? And he says, look, I I'm, I don't do that. I said, but I can hook you up because he knew about us. Yeah. I, I can hook you up to the right people. So. Next thing we know is we get a phone call from this guy from Belgium, and and he says, "Look, we're interested in getting a uh, you know uh, computers to the to uh, to my end product to my end user." Yeah. And so uh, so anyhow, the, we made arrangements and we met. This guy's name was Eddie Hawk. Oh, Eddie Hawk. Yeah, I've heard of Eddie Hawk. Yeah, famous guy. Eddie shows up at our door, and and Eddie and I hit it off immediately. Uh-huh. And I think I told you before that Eddie was a Mensa guy. Yeah. He spoke several languages. He was he was always very business, a uh, very likable guy. Yeah. And he just basically said, look, I am the main procurement officer for the Soviet Union. Wow. And it says anything that comes in or out of the Soviet Union, I get a piece of. Yeah. And so I said what happened was whenever Rusk came in and landed that plane, the Soviets got all nervous that their 11 time zones needed to be protected. Yeah. So they wanted to make a complete network of IBM 360s, uh, VAX 8800, uh, you know, and all the way up to a Cray, uh, Cray 1, I think it is, mm-hmm. uh, supercomputer to, in order to 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 supply uh you know the radar systems for all the the whole Soviet Union to coordinate everything yeah yeah and so and we got off on that and and it was pretty cool because when we finally arrested Eddie uh it, I think it was the first time that I've ever heard of I think that Keith Prager one of my bosses told me that uh, a person was actually sentenced to the custody of the U.S. Customs Service huh. and so he was he was sent to us for two years uh-huh and Eddie and I worked together in our covert. And Eddie was so cool because we had phones set up in this one room, this phone room. And if it was different countries and stuff like that, and it would ring and, and it would pick it up. And Eddie would start speaking fluently in that language. Wow. I mean, it was really, it was really incredible. So you arrest Eddie. Right. And they turn him over to customs. Right. And you use him as an informant, basically. Yeah. We, we debriefed Eddie for almost three weeks. And but the problem was he was at the MCI, which is a... Um, uh, Metropolitan Correctional Institute down in Miami. So yeah. we had to we had to go down there and get him into a separate room. And we actually he, that's when he we and he said we got a lot of companies over here that I've already given deposits to, you know, to bring in computers and and we actually provided a thirty sixty uh, IBM computer, a three sixty computer. Uh, we had the uh, NSA people come down and they painted the motherboard for us <laughs> so that this thing would originally would work fine. And then after 30 days, it just, you know, X's and O's. Yeah. And so, uh, so we went ahead and did that and just to make sure it didn't work. We, we dropped it off the back of the truck, <laughs> but uh, just to make sure. But uh, anyhow, but they, but they loved us and they, they couldn't wait to get more and more and more. And so, uh, wow. 
So finally, we had a bunch of companies over here that were willing to to you know sell sell out the U.S. Jeez. You know for to go to Russia. So wow. we lined them all up and we did them one at a time, and we ended up shipping a supercomputer uh, up to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, we ended up taking off the company up here and 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 various companies around the country. But it worked out real. Good. Yeah. And Eddie went back. Eddie fulfilled his his duty, and and uh, and Eddie and I became good friends. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I will tell you right now because I I knew he got in trouble and and. Uh, Matter of fact, I met him at his house when I went over to Belgium. A beautiful home, uh, you know, twenty-seven thousand square foot home with wow. with all the, well, you know, all kinds of classic cars. I said, Eddie, you did pretty well for yourself. Yeah. He said, Yeah. He said, But I'm I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. He says, I promise you. And so I said, All right. Well, whatever. It's because we'll catch you again. <laughs> and so he's a legend. I mean, were you working with DEA on that operation? Because I know they were involved with him with, uh, the special investigations unit. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, never, never did. Never did that in Miami because Miami was all drugs yeah. and Eddie was just like, like he was dealing everything but drugs. Yeah. I mean, he, he didn't, he didn't do drugs at all, yeah. but everything that came in and out, he was the main procurement officer for, for the Soviets. Wow. What was his nationality? He was a Belgian. He was, uh, he was from a small town in Belgium. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I had heard, I, I, I never found out for sure, but I heard that the Bulgarians, the guys that we had, you know, uh, arrested in for the Klystron tube, um, they actually caught up with him and they killed him. But I'm, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Because I asked Eddie one time, I said, Eddie, you know, you got your same phone number. Yeah. Why do you keep your same phone number for? He said, over here, it takes a year to get your phone number changed. Wow. He said, because everything is government owned and it all goes through the government. Yeah. And so I, I had heard that. I don't know if that's true or not, but one of the guys, one of the agents in Miami, uh, with with customs told me that that he had, he had been uh, killed by the Bulgarians. Uh-huh. So whether whether or not, and it was just a really really fine fellow. The man Fred is referring to, Eddie Garandis Hock, was a Dutch national who was arrested on December fourteenth, nineteen eighty eight, after he paid fifty thousand dollars in Swiss francs to U.S. undercover agents. He was charged with conspiring to illegally export a digital equipment corporation VAX 8800 computer from the United States to Bulgaria. Hack later turned informant and helped break up a high-tech smuggling network spanning six American cities and eight foreign countries based in Belgium. It sought U.S. computers to bolster the Soviet air defense system after a West German pilot landed in Moscow's Red Square on a lark. Based on information provided by Eddie Hack, five people and two corporations were indicted by a federal grand jury in a smuggling case involving $1.8 million worth of sensitive computer equipment. So there were no lack of companies here willing to do business. No, and, and that was Exodus in general. If you, if you look at the U.S. Exodus program, uh, we were we were making uh, arrests and seizures all over the country, yeah. and and working with our our foreign counterparts overseas, yeah. and making big big huge seizures over there. Yeah, I mean it just it just you know, and the big thing was like you get a you get a country like Iran, yeah, and as soon as as soon as the Shah was was overrun, then we put all the sanctions on them, and so they can't get anything. Right. Well, they've got 114 F4, F14 Tomcats, yeah, and they can't get parts, so they start coming over here looking for parts, yeah, and then that's the way the whole thing starts, yeah, and that's and country after country where there's sanctions. Those 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 procurement officers will come back to the United States looking for stuff. Right, and and there's no shortage of companies here that are willing to to skirt the sanctions and break laws here to to make some money, and they're big companies. Right, 
And that, that brings up another case that I worked on, the David Tompkins case. Mm-hmm. And, and when I was working with customs, again, I was called, uh, I transferred out of Miami, and uh, but I was called by the Miami agents. They asked me what I do in undercover, uh, working on some uh, military uh, soldier fortune type of guys that were out of London. Uh-huh. And they were looking to come over to the United States to, to do some stuff. And so I met with the informant. And I don't want to say anything about the informant because he's still very active, but I just want to say that uh, we hooked up with him, and he hooked me up with uh, with David and two of his cohorts uh, in uh, the Intercontinental Hotel in Miami. And uh, we started talking back and forth. And I always David was a stand up guy. I mean, he was uh, you know just a you could tell he'd been around. Yeah. And he he had a group of mercenaries. He said that uh, that are trying to do something down in South America that he's not going to tell me anything about. But but can you provide an airplane? David Tompkins has been described as a man with an almost unquenchable thirst for adventure. Born in Hampshire, England, he became an expert in blowing open safes in Britain and France as a young man, even breaking into the safe of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. After spending most of the 60s in and out of jail, he was offered the chance to fight as a mercenary during the 1970s in one of Africa's bloodiest civil wars in Angola. During the 80s, this suave, blonde-haired mercenary branched out into the arms trade, supplying weapons to various military forces. In the summer of 1988, he was recruited to kill the head of the notorious Medellin cartel, Pablo Escobar. After that plot failed spectacularly, a rival Colombian cartel hired Thompson to blow up Pablo Escobar who was now staying in a specially built prison. Tompkins planned to buy an A-37 Dragonfly light attack aircraft and bomb the prison. I said, well, what type of airplane? Because you heard that I was an airplane. I came off as being an airplane broker. Yeah. I actually had to go to school for a little bit to learn different things about different airplanes. Uh But uh, I went over there and I said, I said, yeah, what are you looking for? He said, we're looking for a low level uh Cessna jet and it's called a dragonfly mm-hmm. and it's uh, and the dragonfly was used in Vietnam for low level bombing mm-hmm. okay during, back during Vietnam and so he said we've been looking for over a year for one of these if you can do it i've heard that i've heard good things about you f- from the informant that uh, you you've delivered things for him before and the informant was basically was was caught up with a load of cocaine coming in mm-hmm. and was he decided to cooperate and that's the only reason why he was cooperating yeah and so, and he's one to turn us on to David. Just to review, David is a former British Special Forces guy, or like SAS guy, and he turned into a he turned into a merc, yeah, uh, a mercenary, and he started his own his own company, yeah. And then uh, he he started telling me this: we tried to do an operation on this particular uh, target about four or five years ago, and he says, but we we uh, one of the one of the helicopters crashed into the side of the mountain, and so guys were killed and and stuff like that. So we didn't do it. So I started doing some research and found out that that uh, he had, had in fact tried to to kill uh, Mara Escobar uh, way back uh, with a special forces team from all over his mercs from all over the country that came in. Right. I want to say there might have been as many as twelve guys and two helicopters, and they knew where Escobar was, and he was taking a back road. They knew what what, what car he was in. Yeah. And they, but the thing went belly up like right away. So who are they doing this for? They must have been hired by somebody to take out Escobar. What happened was um, when Escobar went into prison, you know, he, he built his own prison down there and had a 3,000 square foot, you know, 
prison cell. <laughs> and so uh, he gets up there and uh, he decides that he's paying them. This is what this is only conjecture from DEA yeah. that he was paying the uh, Colombian military three million dollars a month for protection for a three mile perimeter around the around the uh, the establishment. So, and I understand that he stopped paying them, which is which is on Narcos and some of those places on Netflix that they talk about. Yeah. So also the Calais guys, the Cali cartel guys, found out about the two brothers down there. Yeah. And they so they hired David uh-huh. and another guy, uh, uh, Salcedo, Jorge Salcedo. Uh-huh. And Salcedo was a was a high ranking member of the Colombian military intelligence. Okay. Uh-huh. So we made arrangements. We talked back and forth. And oh, Salcedo was with him. I, I excuse me. I take that back. At the very first meeting we had at the Intercontinental Hotel. Okay. And he tells me at that at that meeting, I work for the uh, Colombian military. I said, I'm telling you right now, if, if you're not on the up and up, I will know about it. And and then and this thing is over. Yeah. And I said, I said, hey, look, you can do what you want. Because back then we had 130 something covert companies around the country and we all backstopped with each other. Yeah. So you could never find out who we were. And, you know, you, we went from one corporation, LLC to another. Right. And so we got up there and uh, so I'd have to worry about that. Yeah. And South State was a, was a very cool guy. Yeah. And so he uh, he starts talking back and forth that. Under the cover, he's working for another some other people. Well, it, it was it was the Calais guys, which we found out later on. Yeah, became the director of security for them. Yeah, and so uh, they actually met me. We we called the uh, we, we we looked around and stuff like that. We found out that uh, the Illinois uh, National Guard had the Dragonfly still in service. Uh huh. So we brought one down and we told Tompkins that we need money to uh, to get the plane here. And so he, we met him later that night. A uh, couple, a couple weeks later, he, he was actually living in Miami uh-huh. at, a, at another informant's house, believe it or not, <laughs> informant for customs that was telling us what he was telling, telling us. But but he wasn't even telling the informant what was going on. Yeah. He said, he, and David would tell me several times. He said, you know, you the United States will, will really thank us for what we're trying to do. Yeah. And so, but we never acted like we knew what we was talking about. Right. So uh, one thing led to another, and so I said, we need money. And so he says, well, let me let's meet at the. Uh, Donut shop down there by the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami. Uh-huh. So I met him over there at the uh, at the donut shop, and he gave me twenty five thousand dollars in cash. Wow! To bring the plane down here. So, but that we're repainting the plane. Yeah, it was it was olive green, and we painted it black, and we took the tail number off. Yeah. So uh, we made arrangements for those guys to come down here, and they came back over, and they loved the airplane. Uh, myself and uh, and another. DEA pilot that that used to fly that plane in Vietnam was 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 on site, and so they never trusted him. I don't know what it was because uh, they didn't trust the pilot. They didn't trust the DEA guy. They yeah. they just he was too. I don't know what it was, but and, and it was he was a good guy. Yeah, but he didn't really go with the flow. He didn't want to go out and having drinks and stuff like that. He didn't want to. Okay, nothing nothing to do. Yeah, and so, which uh, which which was fine. Yeah, but uh, we got up there and. Uh, they they loved the plane. And so I David went out and got on the phone and was calling whoever he was calling. And Salcedo went out and asked him also, because we, we had the plane uh there and and uh, we didn't we didn't fly it though. Yeah. Okay. We said we can't we can't fly it. I said we you know it's just here to look at. Yeah. And so we uh because the the Illinois pilot was was still here and he was gonna fly it for us later on for for a recognition flight. Yeah. And so uh but Salcedo comes up to me and he so he says, Hey, look, I'll buy all those those gun cameras and those and those uh, you know those machine guns are I'll, I'll buy all that stuff. And so then we went into a second second contract for not only the sale of the plane but also for five two five hundred pound of initiator bombs and the gun cameras and all this other stuff because they want to take pictures of what they're going to do. <laughs> so I said okay no problem. So we got following one and right around Christmas time, I got a call from uh, a guy in charge of and see so all this was going on in 
Puerto Rico. Yeah. Okay. Remy had the case, but we were doing everything in Puerto Rico. At, at uh, There was a B-52 place over there, uh, uh, Air Force Base, Aguadilla. Mm-hmm. And so we were going to meet him over at Aguadilla because we're going to try to get him on U.S. soil yeah. you know, in order to arrest him. But they, the guys never bought it, and they, they never they never got onto it. Yeah. And so, David, after we uh, we get the plane and stuff like that, and, and uh, we actually did a, a flight a flyover for him you know, a few weeks later, and only on video. We never we never let them be there. Yeah. And so the pilot took it up, and then they took the plane back to Illinois, and, and they repainted it. Yeah. And so, and so we're off and running. So David called me one night. So he says, Hey, look, we're, we are ready to go. We're on all fours, but can you keep the plane for 30 days? Yeah. And I said, what? I said, why would I keep this? I said, David, you're messing up the deal. I said, you know, I, I need my money. Yeah. And he says, he says, he says, we, we, well, you never gave us the tail number. I said, I'm not giving you the tail number until I get, until I get my money. Yeah. Understand that. Yeah. And so he says back and forth. So he says, all right, well, they're not ready for us down there. I said, right, 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 where? He said, they're not ready down in, in, uh, and he said somewhere down in Costa Rica. Yeah. I think it was or Salvador. Yeah. And so he says, they're not ready for us down there. And so this is all right. How much was the plane going to cost? The plane was going to be about 1.2 mil. Wow. You know, it's just, just, the, and, and the bombs are going to be separate. The bombs are going to be about a million bucks. Yeah. And uh, this was all stuff that he said, we have the money. It's ready to go we'll, and we'll pay for it. And he was paying you up until this point, he's paying you in cash. Yeah, he's paying cash because yeah. I met him that night at the donut shop, and he gave me hundreds, you know, um, in a satchel. Yeah, and he said this. This is just. The, he said this is just the start of it. He said, uh, you know, I, I've got full access to to, to their, their their purse strings. Yeah, and he said they're they're very excited about being able to get be able to do this. And so uh, a few weeks went by, and I still got the, and we're still talking back and forth. And if you can believe it, back in those days, I was calling from my home. Wow, <laughs> and calling <laughs> calling directly to him at his home. And, and every time I think about that now, I just get kind of chill bumps about how easy it would be to figure things out, right? But yeah, that's the way it was back then. I mean, you, you, that's the way you, you had to fly with it. So uh, we got up there, and all of a sudden, just before Christmas, I get a call from the guy that's a special agent in charge of the customs office in um, Puerto Rico. Yeah. And he's an old friend of mine. We, we knew each other in ATF. He was a former ATF agent. And so he, and he starts telling me about... Uh, that you know, you understand that we're going to have to tell the agency about what's going on because we got a, a standing up, you know, cooperation agreement with them, which I was familiar with because I worked with the agency guys all the time when I was with Exodus in Miami. Yeah, and I says, I said, look, I won't say what his name was, but I said, look, I would not do this. Yeah, I said these guys are connected. This guy South is connected. Yeah, and he says, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. Well, that Monday morning, everybody's gone. Yeah, and I get a I get a text from uh, from David. <laughs> And he says, hey, how are you guys doing in Exodus? And uh, he says, I understand you work for the U.S. Customs Service in the Exodus. And he says, and that uh, that pilot, I said, uh, is he is he DEA or is he, uh, you know? And so, I mean, every, everything is just laid out, yeah. right? Yeah. So, but David always never thought I was the guy. And he's trying to tell me to, to watch my P's and Q's because, you know, people around you, you are not to be trusted and stuff like that. Right. But, so the deal went belly up. And what they're trying to do was uh, they wanted the, uh, the, uh, the plane to go down when Escobar was still in the prison and they were going to bomb the prison. Okay. Okay. And they had it all set up. And then I found out about five months later that, uh, Salcedo and, uh, Tompkins were both almost arrested at an airstrip, 6,000 foot airstrip. See, we tried to get them up here, up, up uh, at an airstrip that's close by here where I live. Yeah. But, uh, these, these jets, jets don't have brakes. Yeah. So you have at least 6,000, you know, foot runway in order for them to, to, to stop. Yeah. And so, and I said, well, what, what was the problem? So David did tell me before the thing went belly up, he said, they've been building this, uh, 
airstrip down in in Salvador somewhere, and the, 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 and it's concrete, yeah. so it's not it's not. He said because we we told him we're not going to go secondhand on this thing because we want to use this, use this plane again. So the holdup was building this airstrip. The whole thing that was building airstrip, <laughs> and then I as I understand the uh, the Salvadorian police. I'm not sure exactly what the country was, yeah. but there was an article that was in the paper that someone had sent me and said that they had stormed this airstrip, and at the far end of it was David Tompkins and Sal Sato, and they got off in a plane, but on the tarmac were two 500 pound initiator bombs. Wow! <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're still trying to do it, even even way back then. Yeah. And then as I understand, they caught Sal Sato uh, after he left the Colombian military. And they actually, DA caught him and actually used him. Um, and he actually got the, I think it was Fernandez brothers, they're called. Yeah. And you know, the two brothers that ran the Carly, the Cali cartel. Yeah. And he said, if I, if I get them, I want to be, you know, taken care of. And so he's, he's in a witness protection program to this day. Yeah. I've heard of him. I've heard of him through DEA people. They said he was a great informant. Yeah. And I, and I met him first, first up. And I mean, I had him in, I had him going. He, I mean, he loved those cameras and he loved those, those, uh, those machine guns. Wow. And David Thompson, what happened with him? Well, what happened to him was, you know, we, we put an Interpol warrant on him. Yeah. And so uh, last, well, it's when I was working, I, I went to work for the, uh, after I left the customs, I went to work for the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was teaching with um, uh, counterterrorism mm-hmm. and maritime maritime uh, training. And so I get a call from Miami, and it's a AOSA Schlesinger, which I used to work with. And he was a great guy. And he says, hey, look, you know, I just thought to let you know. Uh, they just arrested a guy by the name of David Tompkins in El Paso. And I said, it's been 15 years. And he said, yeah, he was trying to go down to South America for, on business. And he says, uh, he said, so he's he's in a holding cell right now, but he won't say nothing. Yeah. And so I said, let me, let me talk to yeah. him. I said, is he talking? At all? He said, well, he hasn't asked for an attorney, but he's still, we, we've told him that you're on an Interpol warrant and, and you ain't going anywhere. Yeah. And so uh, I got on the phone with him. I said, David, you know what this is? And he says, Oh man, I know who you are. <laughs> and he says, "Can I work a deal?" I said, "Work a deal down there." I said, "I'm, I'm out of it, buddy. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm retired." And so we got he got six years in prison, and I think he's uh, he 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 might have done some work, but he, he and I always got along. He even started laughing on the phone. Yeah. And he says, he says "No, I never had a problem with you, but that DEA that, and my explosives deleted." <laughs> yeah. Wow. So as soon as you inform the agency, the CIA. Yeah. The whole thing went the whole thing went belly up. The whole thing went belly up. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And we're we're quite we're we're sure that you know the Colombian military intelligence folks down there got up with the agency people and right and they said that, you know this is not in our best interest. Yeah. You know because it caused an international incident. And you're working for the cartel. Right. And so they so they just they, uh, just, they shut just shut it down. It and then South Sato went to work for uh, for the Fernandez. I think the I think that's what they're called. Yeah, in Cali. Yeah. But that's what that's who. That's who had uh, organized the whole thing the first time. Yeah. Through Tompkins when when the helicopter crashed. Yeah. And that that's in publication somewhere if you want to look it up. Just Google his name and and you'll see it. Okay. What a case. And and he was a good guy. And I never had any problems with David. He was always straight up with me. Yeah. Uh, always told me exactly what he was doing and and uh, and he trusted me too. So it, it worked out uh, yeah. for him better. And yeah. I don't say it worked out good for him. But. <laughs> <laughs> Pablo Escobar died in December 1993 in a shootout with members of the Colombian Special Forces. The end of the $7 billion a year Cali cartel, on the other hand, came in 2006 in Miami when its founders, the Orahuella brothers, were both sentenced to 30 years in federal prison. They had been betrayed by the aforementioned Jorge Salcedo, a soft-spoken family man with degrees in mechanical engineering 
and industrial economics. Salcedo was the Cali cartel's head of security and organized both plots to kill their rival, Pablo Escobar. By the mid-1990s, with the USDEA closing in on them, the Arguella brothers were turning more paranoid and violent. Salcedo, fearing for his own life and those of his family, double-crossed them and sought U.S. protective custody. Thanks to him, the entire Cali cartel leadership was taken down and the Oroella brothers were arrested. What a career you've had, man. What a career. Yeah, and just uh, another one that real quick uh, to show you that, that that we do work other stuff besides undercover stuff, but we uh, we got information about Sarkis Saganalian. Oh, yeah. Sarkis was referred to as a merchant of death. Yeah. And uh, he was the arms international arms dealer. He had a business... Uh, in Miami at the airport, and he'd always been in—he's always been up to his neck in some type of t- turmoil. Yeah, and he worked for the agency for several several times. Well, we got we got uh, word of him that he was doing a bunch of stuff and working with the Bell Helicopter Company, you know, McDonnell Douglas Helicopter Company, and they wanted—they were trying to export 109 tow attack helicopters uh, to Kuwait, and at that time, Kuwait and Iraq were buddies. Yeah, and they actually had a squadron of of pilots in Kuwait. That were training on the MD five hundred. Wow! And the thing was, there's all types of sanctions on on Iraq because of Saddam. He was the big arms dealer for Saddam Hussein. Yeah, and so they they were they're they're prepared to do the whole nine yards. They yeah. they did a, a a tech license. Yeah. Then they were going to do a demo license, and then they were going to do an export license, and it was all being covered. Right. At the highest levels. Right. And so, but we caught on to it that all the all the planes were going to be shipped over there. And then they're going to be flown across the border to the to to Iraq. Yeah. And so we got to that and and a bunch of other stuff, but. To make a long story short, we did convict him, uh, and uh, we, we indicted two other guys from uh, McDonnell Douglas Helicopter Company, but that didn't fly. Yeah, and so uh, so we ended up arresting him. We we convicted him and his son. Yeah, um, as it was called Pan Aviation uh-huh. back in those days. But he was, in, and it's funny when when myself and the U.S. Attorney went up to the CIA at uh, Langley. We went in and, and you know, these guys are, are, are we thought they'd be hush hush and didn't want to talk to us. And because you know, said, you don't understand, we're not here because we want to be here. We're, we're here because the judge told us to be here, right. you know, to get discovery. Yeah. Well, these guys said, look, we want this guy out of our hair. Yeah. He said everywhere he goes, he puts up the agency symbol and he says he's working for us. Yeah. He said he's having worked for us in decades. Yeah. And like he sees uh, two of uh, the civilian version of the uh, was the LC-100 or the C-130. Mm-hmm. And they were flying through, uh, he said, through Libyan airspace, and they seized them both. Yeah. And he, he said it was a CIA operation, and CIA, we had nothing to do with that. And he said it wasn't even international. He said they were in international waters whenever whenever they seized the plane. Yeah. And so went up there, and then they brought in his files, and it was like three or four feet of files. <laughs> and we, we sat there, we looked through all this stuff, and it was all dated. Yeah. And we came back and told the judge, Judge, he's full of it. He's, he's never been an operative. He said back in the old days, he did a, a little something. So whenever we arrested him, and we were all sitting there, and we had our tail feathers going, and we said, we got the biggest guy in the arms business, and we got him, we got him. A week later, my boss comes in and says, you're not going to believe this. He says, what? The thieves have come in. The FBI has come in and taken him out. We're using him. Oh, and I wow. said, he's going to give him a bunch of garbage. Yeah. And so it turns out he gave him a money laundering ring in, in the Middle East, and he never did a yeah. day in jail. Yeah. Yeah. Now his son did, son did, but he never did. It was kind of crazy. But you know, that was a lot of work. That case was a lot of work, a lot of background work. I bet a lot of international travel because we had to go up and 
we, we met with Ali North. Uh, we met with uh, Wise Weinsberger. Uh-huh. We met with with Richard Nixon wow. in in New York at his his brownstone. Yeah, and it was all we didn't want to do any of those guys, and they were very uncooperative. Like like Ali North was not cooperative at all. Yeah, I mean he just maybe he'd been tainted so bad by other yeah. press and everything like that. I mean I'm I'm not sure, but yeah, but uh, but it, it was a very good case. Yeah, and all those guys had dealt with Sarkeesian at, at some point. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it was it was during the Iran Contra stuff, right? You know, and Sar- Sarkis was right in the middle of that. Yeah, and we actually seized a plane, a C forty seven, going down to uh, Nicaragua, uh-huh. uh, with full of arms. Uh-huh. Uh, and then that's whatever the CIA finally figured out they can't get this stuff out unless Customs is in on it. Yeah. So I was the liaison between us and them if there anything was going out, but I also checked to make sure that everything was was on the up and up. Right. And as a matter of fact, one time I get a call because I was, I was on leave, personal leave, and I get a call from the uh, the uh, Port director over at the airport, and he says, "Hey man, you got to come over here. It's three o'clock in the morning." I said, "What? What? Can you wait till tomorrow?" He said, "No, we got four guys over here, and they're in holding." And I said, "You need to come over here." So I got dressed and went over there, and uh, as I walk into this big room, there's like 200 people in there, all customs people, Metro Dade, everybody else. And so I'm looking around, and so I asked the port director, "What's going on?" I said, "These four guys over here have got machine guns. They've got carats. They got F4. I mean C4. They got Claiborne landmines, and it was all in their hold bags." And their carry Yeah. And what happened was they came through customs uh, through immigration. They had uh, they had uh, phony passports. Yeah. And that's what gave them away. They, they came in a, on an LL flight uh-huh. from, from Israel. Uh-huh. And I'll show you I'll show you how things work in, in in that that realm too. So they had this stuff in their carry on luggage. Their carry on back back in the old days before Jeez. everybody even knew. Wow. And they they didn't they, they never they didn't catch that. They they caught them at the at the INS station before they even got to customs. Uh huh. And they came in on forged passports. Wow. And so uh, these guys are all, and these guys look like I mean stone killers. Yeah. I mean, they're all big, bulky guys, and the only time they ever wore a suit was to get on the airplane. Yeah. Solid blue eyes. They're all standing there. They're, they're just they're ready to fight everybody in the room if they had to. So I, I get together with an agency guy that I knew real well down in, in Homestead. And he said, I said, he said, look, this is a debacle. Since first off, I said, everybody get out of the room. Everybody out of the room. So it was just myself and the agency guys who were standing there and, and my, my my supervisor. And so I said, look, put these guys up in a hotel. You sit in the same hotel room with them. I want you in the room with them. Yeah. And I said, what's going on tomorrow? He says, they're supposed to meet a plane here at 10 o'clock yeah. at uh, 10 p.m. Airport. I said, well, what's going on? He says, I can't tell you. He says, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, it just they, they got to get out of here. Yeah. And so the next morning we met them, and they, they, they had their parachute bags, had everything in them. I mean, machine guns, <laughs> and you, you name it, everything in, in, in their carry-on, uh, their, their, their whole bags. And so the, we put them up at the Yeltsin Hotel, which is that, that French hotel. Yeah. We put them over there. So next morning at ten o'clock, uh, I, and I and I took all the property and took it back to the office and secured it. Yeah. And so we're, and we're going through it. I said, "Look at all this stuff." I said, "I don't even know what this stuff is." <laughs> Where did they fly in from? Well, they flew in from from uh, uh, from Tel Aviv. Okay. 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 And so what happened was, uh, I was asking Bill. Well, excuse me. I was asking the guy with me, and I said, "I said, what's going on?" And he said, "Read the papers in a few weeks. It'll, it'll explain everything." Yeah. And so these guys take off in a plane, and so. About three or four weeks later in the Miami Herald, I read a thing about where several months ago, the uh, the Argentine government had uh, arrested three journalists and said that they were spies yeah. for Mossad. And sure enough, they were spies for Mossad. They were looking for for whoever. Yeah. And so uh, what happened was the Israelis knew that they couldn't do anything with it. So what they did was they hired, these were Jordanians, ah. 
And the Jordanians actually went down there and I read the paper. I mean, three or four people got killed and they got all three of the journalists out and, and they're back on a, on a trip back home. And, and, but that's, that just shows you what could happen. Like, like that quick, yeah. you know, just that quick. Yeah. And then, and he said that the, it was a successful mission. He says, but if it hadn't been for you guys, I said, you never go off. Well, it said, as soon as everybody got out of the room, then we could, you know, formulate a plan. So I'm confused. So who were these guys now? These guys were Jordanians that were hired by the Israelis. Ah. Because see, Israel and Jordan were still right, still friends. Diplomatically, yeah, yeah. yeah they were still friends, and so the Israelis knew that they they couldn't send them down. They wanted to do a mission in Argentina, but they didn't want to, their guys to get caught. That's it. They didn't want anybody knowing about it. Yeah, right. Did you find out what the mission was? Was it? It was to take out some journalists. Yeah, they went into a prison and they got these these three journalists out. And like I said, two or three people got two or three uh, people got killed. Yeah, according to the article. Yeah, and uh, they, they got everybody out safe, and they, they went back to Israel. I guess. Wow, wow. So that that, that was that's just what could happen in Miami overnight. Yeah, you know Miami, <laughs> one of those international cities. It just stuff happens. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so you never know what's going to show up. No, you never know. And then you have to try to unravel the trail yeah. of who the people are and who they're working for. Well, I, I guess I guess the uh, the, the uh, passports were pretty good, except they're making that changeover then that had a little hologram in them. Yeah. And these passports didn't have the hologram, and so that that alerted INS right away, and they called customs and then customs. But I was out of town, and so the guy that they dealt with, uh, he didn't know anything about it, so he went over there and they, they just put a guy against the wall. Yeah. And so when I got there, and you know, I, everything was everything was on the up and up. They had all the proper authorization to be there and and to fly back out and everything else like that. Yeah. And so uh, and they even had authorization to be carrying all the machine guns. And they explode. Really? Yeah, they had license. No kidding. The agency got license. Yeah, for all that stuff. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't legal to carry it in your carry-on luggage, was it? No. Yeah. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say. But back in those days, they tried to get out the pistol. Yeah. And uh, probably the L out guys ran on it too. You know, yeah. the, the airline people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they you know they, they were close with the government. The man Fred just described is Sarkis Sagagnalian, a Syrian Lebanese international private arms dealer who gained fame for being, quote, the Cold War's largest arms merchant and the lead seller of firearms and weaponry to the former government of Iraq under Saddam Hussein during the 1980s. Saghagnalian defended the sales when they were later revealed on the eve of the Gulf War in January 1991. His testimony led the U.S. Justice Department to file federal charges against him. He was convicted on six counts for possession of armaments and intent to sell to Iraq. Four years later, in 1995, after he was released, Sagagnalian moved to France and opened offices there and in Amman, Jordan. He died on October 5, 2011, in Hialeah, Florida. You know, I'll just I'll just end it up by telling you that. The- we used to work a lot with the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. We used to call them fish and nightlife because uh, <laughs> we used to have some some long nights with those guys, yeah. uh, both on the job and off the job. But uh, there's this one agent that uh, he and I became very, very good friends, and uh, I'll just call him Agent Terry. And so uh, Terry was uh, uh, just he was a former Marine, had been wounded a bunch of times in Vietnam, had half his guts cut out of him, you know, from from different from different wounds. Yeah. And if he'd eat, he'd have to go to the bathroom like as soon as he ate. I mean, it was crazy stuff. And he and I really hit it off. And so, um, but he's telling me some of the undercover stuff that they used to do. But now here's a guy that would go up 500 miles from the nearest town with a whole bunch of poachers that would kill you in New York minute to get, you know, bear bladders and bear claws and, and, uh, you know, kill anything. And and she said, 
He said, but you're on your own. Yeah, you had to do your thing. Yeah. And, and they, they will test you. And, and getting back to that Green Beret case, I forgot to tell you, one, one thing that they, they were always telling me, is that we can get you anytime we want to get you, you know. Yeah. And I said, yeah, yeah. So one experience was, and I'll t- get back to the gorilla story in a minute. Yeah. But I do have to tell you these two instances. One time I'm uh, I'm in the bathroom and I'm putting on my Kel unit, which is, you know, the transmitter. Yeah. And so so these guys actually opened my door and started walking in. And I got my I got my pants down. Yeah. And I and the and uh and so I'm trying to put my shirt together and put my pants up so they can't see anything. And I come around the corner. And there's the radio sitting on my bed. Oh. And so I'm looking at it. I'm saying, I'm waiting for any time for the squelch to break that these guys are in place. Yeah. So I go and sit, I sit on the, uh, I sit on a radio <laughs> and I tell them, come on, let's go. We've got to go. got to go. And I said, no, 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 no. So I'll be down in a minute. I said, I, I got to go back into the bathroom. I'm having a problem. Yeah. And so the guys left. Jeez. That was the first time. Second time is that we're out and we don't really party because these guys say seven o'clock. If it's seven o'clock, they're gone. Yeah. If you're, if you're not, yeah. they're, they're not on Caribbean time. They're not on Cuban time. Right. And right. so we get up there and, uh, all of a sudden, I go down the hallway and open up the uh, the door, and all of a sudden, there's a ping, and you, that's a very distinctive sound, and it's it's a, it's a it's the little pinger off the hand grenade off of into a, <laughs> and so all of a sudden, I run around the corner to get out, and I come around the corner, both these guys are standing there, and they're both drunk, and they're saying, "See, you know what?" So another time, I bought a case of Claymore landmines down in Key West, and Keith Anderson and Carlisle are both there. Yeah, and so I'm getting ready to go to bed. I lay, lay my head down and, and I feel something hard. I lift it up and it's a Claymore landmine. Jeez. And and the leg wires are actually in the in the in the Claymore. Oh my god. And so I go and I, and I follow the lines out and it all of a sudden it goes over to the window, open it up, and both these guys are sitting there drinking Jack Daniels and they got the clacker and the, the wires aren't in it, but the clacker and then there, there's a little there's a little electronic charge that comes out yeah. of it. And they go back in it and they're they're laughing like anything. But anyhow. Oh my God. It's a crazy sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> and so but anyhow with the gorilla thing, it's so Terry. Terry tells me this story one time uh, that he uh, he's hooked onto these dopers and they, they got a bunch of guns in their houses and stuff like that because he's seen them. But uh, they want to buy a lowland gorilla. The, the dopers love to have exotic animals. Uh, <laughs> all the Mario Tabrawi, uh, that whole big case they had down there, the, the murder cases, uh, and they all have exotic animals. Tigers and stuff, yeah. This is in Miami, Fred? This is in Miami, yes. Down in West Miami. Yeah. And so they, they want to buy this lowland gorilla. And so they get up there in the... Uh, I, I said, well, how much did it cost? I, I think it was, I mean, they're, they're expensive, like 800,000 bucks. Wow. So we, they made it arrangements to bring a gorilla down, a real one down for these guys to look at. And they loved it. They wanted to buy it, everything else like that. But they were going to take it down south, probably down to Escobar's farm. Yeah. You know, from what, from what I understood. So Terry decides to dress up and they, they, they built a big, a big cage, but it was a wooden box mm-hmm. on a C-47. Mm-hmm. And so it had, it had these air holes in the side of it. And so uh, Terry dresses up in a gorilla outfit right? <laughs> and actually gets inside the uh Because they want to the see the gorilla crate. before they buy it. So he actually gets inside the crate. So we wait and we wait. And like I said before, they're on they're on Colombian time, Cuban time. Yeah. And so like an hour goes by. So everybody kind of leaves and there's only a couple of people around. And so also these guys, we didn't realize, but they came through a back gate. Uh-huh. And so and they they went through the gate. And so the uh, they come down and this this uh, doper comes in. And he looks in this this hole, and he sees Terry in there with that gorilla suit on, and Terry smoking a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> and so he looks at the doper, and he says, 
And I want to say exactly what he said. He said, hey, you've never seen a gorilla smoke a cigarette before. <laughs> and the guy jumps up and he's screaming and he runs out of the plane and he hits his head on the top of it and knocks himself out. <laughs> and so they, they come out and everybody, this time everybody's swarming around and get everybody in handcuffs. Yeah. So these guys are on, are on their hands and knees or on their knees looking up. Terry comes walking out and he had long, gray, ugly hair. Yeah. You know, because he used to motorcycle with the gangs and stuff like that. Yeah. And so he's walking out and he's smoking a cigarette. Well, the Colombian says, hey, man. Put that gorilla head back on because you're ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and so Terry tells me later on, he gets a call from Joe Leno's people at uh, uh, the J Jay Leno show. Yeah. And they, they're trying to talk him into coming on the show and talking about the case. Yeah. And so Terry, Terry asks his boss, and the boss says, no, no, we're not going to get that experience. Blah, blah. Right. And so then he calls him back and says, no, I can't do it because I'm afraid that, you know, because I do undercover work. He says, no, no, we want you to wear the gorilla suit. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody will ever see your face. <laughs> but they wouldn't they would let him do it. It's going to make too much of a harassment. You know, you make the fish and wildlife people look bad. Right, so, right. But, it, but that, that, was, that was a funny story. You know, Terry, a funny story. Terry's house was a sanctuary. Uh -huh. And one day he calls me on the phone and he says, hey, can you come up here? And so and he'd have, he'd have like Bengal tiger cubs and he'd have leopards and he'd have, uh, you know, exotic birds, uh, macaw parrots. This is in the Florida, South Florida area. Yeah, this is at Broward, Broward County. Okay. He had a farm in Broward County. Yeah. And so uh, the, uh, the the U.S. Fish and Wildlife used his place as a sanctuary. Yeah. Until they could find homes for these places. Right, because they'd seize these animals and they'd, they'd... They can't go back in a while, then they find homes for them, stuff like yeah. that. So he called me one day, come up, and, uh, you know, a couple, couple months I was saying back in October or so. So I go up and he says, uh, so I go and I come around the corner and he's in the, he's in a swimming pool. Yeah. And so there's like a hundred little alligators. Wow. All over, swimming all over the place. All right. Wow. And so, so he says, take a picture of me, take a picture. And so anyhow, so I get ready to take it. He turns around and pulls his shorts down. Yeah. And his butt's there. So I take a picture. So later on, I get a Christmas card from him, and they says he says, "Hey, uh, so and so and I are doing great up here." And the picture, he says, "But I'm, I'm up to my ass in alligators." <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just the type of guy he was. I mean, he, he always had he always had me going. That's oh, great. he was funny, funny, funny guy. Wow, wow, so, wow! So Miami really is in those days really was like the Wild West. Yeah, I mean, you you could go outside your. Your house at night. I mean, we had a guy, we had a, a, a people that moved in across the street from us. And you can always tell when the dopers move in because they, they tent the windows, they put bars up, they put a couple Rottweilers in the backyard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that that was standard. And so we started, and we counted 67 license plates in 30 days that came in and out of it. They always go into the garage. Wow. And then they come back out. And so we just started, you know, I just started calling Metro Dade um, just because I knew a lot of guys were the good, good guys with the narcotics unit. Yeah. And they started picking them off left and right. Well, Christmas morning, my daughter comes in and she says, comes up on the side, she's about two or three years old. And she says, daddy, um, priest cars, priest cars. Yeah. And so I, I, I go up to the front and it's Metro dates all over the place. Yeah. Well, right in our swale coming up to our house, there's a, there's an orange tarp and I can see a hand on the other side of it. <laughs> so what happened was uh, the guy told me that it was stash house for money. Yeah. And, uh, and which we knew because we're, we're, we're calling Metro date all the time. Yeah. And uh, the guy got machine gun because he was stealing uh, money from him. Wow. And he, 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 they shot him, and he was coming right from my front door. Wow! I, I he, he knew who I was because I mean it wasn't, it wasn't any any joke. Yeah. But uh, but that that that's type of stuff that happened all the time down there. Jeez. And we did all that, and that's why this, this other guy I'm going to try to turn you on to. He he uh, he he was one of the main guys that did uh, Ozil Blanco, the the female. Yeah. That was Bar's main competition for world co domination. Yeah. yeah. And, and boy, and she was because I testified in that in that trial, the Mero Tabrari trial. Uh, because we were there the day that they 
uh, actually uh, got a uh, ATF uh, informant by the name of Larry Nash. Uh-huh. We were on one side of the gun. You, could, you couldn't get in close because he, and the guy that we were dealing with was an armor for the for the cartel. Uh-huh. And he was making uh, machine guns for me. He was converting Mac 10s, Mac 11s. He was making assassination kits in the briefcases that like they did at Dayland. Yeah. And uh, so he uh, he got up there and uh, uh, we were just sitting there and all of a sudden this big old Cadillac pulls up next to me and it's, you can tell it's a big barrel chested guy. And yeah. He had all the had all the garb on and smoking a big cigar and looks right at me and just kind of smiles. Well, then we we went down and he, he took a left and toward toward the uh, Eddie's house, the, the, the bad guy's house. Yeah. And then there was a tremendous rainstorm. But we could hear that because uh, we told we told Larry not don't ever, and Larry was a good guy. Yeah. He just got bringing 5,000 pounds because he was a golf pro. From Tampa, yeah, and got by FDLE, and he decided to cooperate, and he, he had this, a good hook on these guys down here, but uh, because he was a gringo, they didn't, they didn't trust him that much either, yeah. And so the uh, uh, so when he got over there, he was not supposed to go anywhere, yeah, nowhere, yeah. And the last thing we heard was, oh, we're going down to A Street, we're going down to A Street and Southwest A Street, and about that time, a tremendous rainstorm started. Well, yeah, they they ended up catching him and they they tortured him and killed him. We never did find his body, God. but uh, that's just how fast things can happen. Yeah. But I testified in, in open court and I actually got him convicted uh-huh. because I identified the guy, and they're trying to stay what from your memory. Well, ATF kept we we, we keep a daily journal right back in those days, and everything you do during the day you write down. Right, and I had it all in the journal. I brought it up. Uh-huh. It, was, it was all right there. What he looked like uh, his his uh, as his name was Michael Ramirez. He was the the main broker for. The dope out of a, I want to say Tampa, uh-huh. and he had gotten word that Larry was a snitch. Wow! And so, so he got up there, and he has a wife and three kids, and just a lovely family. God, but it just uh, we always felt bad because he, I mean, we we would have, and then later on that afternoon, they're down in the shopping center, and they actually bring his car back, two of the guys, and get out of it and run, and they they left his car down there at the shopping center, and we we never did, and we 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 did warrants all over the place trying to find him, but we we never could. Yeah. So we felt bad about that. Yeah, that's terrible. That's terrible. Wow. Well, what a career you've had, man. Wow. Oh, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. I I, I, I don't want to do any of it again. I've had other people <laughs> trying to go, let, let's record all this. And I, this is the first recording I've ever, I've ever done, Ralph. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. So, but, it's, uh, but there's a lot more stories. And, you know, I've been in plane crashes. I've been stabbed. I've, you know, you get in shootouts. Uh, we, uh, we we went after uh, El Loco, Paco Sepulveda one time. They, the task force had a, a that he was in town with a couple, and we went over to Key Biscayne, the high rises, and he comes walking out, and he's got his arms under his under his coat. He's got two high level uh, you know uh, hookers with him, and as he drives by, somebody said gun gun gun, and they started shooting, and they start shooting shooting, shooting and we're right behind the main car, and they start shooting. And so we, myself and my partner, both go toward the, toward the floorboard. And then, yeah, they went down, and the guy went down, showed you he didn't know where he was, but he had a, a one-way ticket in and one-way ticket out. I mean, wow. it was, you know, he had money. Kid. And so he, uh, instead of going down to uh, Biscayne Boulevard and taking a right, he took a left and went into Bill Bank State Park. <laughs> and that's where they got him. They got him down there. Yeah. So they ended up, he ended up testifying against uh, Blanco later on uh-huh. as being a one, one, one of her main henchmen. Huh. And I actually had a case on Aviella. Uh, it's called Miyavi. I had a, a machine gun case. Well, he was he was her main assassin. Yeah. And he killed probably in excess of 100 people. Wow. And I still get a, a, a notification from Miyavi every once because he's the only guy still left in prison. Yeah. Everybody else has died. You know, Blanco went back. She was deported back to Colombia and was killed by the method that she initiated up here. It was two guys on a, on a motorcycle. And they came up alongside her and shot her coming out of a deli. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, it's just, they, they just. Yeah. One thing after another. It was it was crazy times back then. People don't even remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. Wow. Well, thanks so much, Fred. This has been uh, fascinating, and uh, 
what a career you've had. Yeah, I, I, I lived good, and, and uh, my my dad always always told me I kept it for all these years, and that is keep your uh, keep your eyes front and your back clear, and it worked. <laughs> and I've, I've lived by that, that that slogan my whole life. Whether staking out crooked green berets, pretending to sell exotic animals to drug kingpins, or tracking the notorious Griselda Blanco, known as the Black Widow, or cocaine godmother, who was involved in much of the drug-related violence that swept Miami during the cocaine wars, Fred Gleff has seen it all. He's been in plane crashes, and he's been shot at and stabbed and more. His service through his time with Army CID, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, U.S. Customs, and the Department of Homeland Security has been stellar and mostly unheralded. As a friend of his said, and I quote, he's one of the good guys, and he represents the very best of federal agents. To support that, in 1984, Fred was awarded Federal Agent of the Year. We hope to have him on the podcast again to talk about more of his adventures. For now, we thank Frederick Gleff for his extraordinary service to our country and name him today's hero behind the headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines. Executive producer Ralph Fazzullo. Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Music provided by Extreme Music. For exclusive content, please join our Patreon group at patreon.com slash heroes behind headlines.